I bring you greetings from brothers and sisters in Christ uh, from Romania. Uh, it's been a joy to be able to uh, visit them over the last four weeks, uh, to spend time with family and uh, friends, as well as to reconnect with our direct ministry partners. I bring you greetings from Titus Akim in Skornichesht, uh, who I was able to see. I bring you greetings from the church, 1-1 Baptist Church in Cluj, uh, where Anka's family uh, is a part of. Uh, I bring you greetings from Sebastian and Lois Vaduva from Emmanuel University. I bring you greetings from Dr. Paul Negrut uh, and the Emmanuel Baptist Church. Uh, and uh, from other churches uh, that I was able to see and visit and pastor friends that I was able to connect with and fellowship and be encouraged by, I am so encouraged to let you know that the Lord is at work in Romania. And the Lord is building up his people, his church. Uh, the Lord is building up churches. Uh, he's raising up pastors. Uh, the needs are many. The opportunities are many. Uh, some of the stories I've heard while there uh, about how the churches of Romania have been uh, coming alongside and helping uh, the Ukrainian refugees have been so, uh, so encouraging and, and helpful to hear. Um, I was also reminded, one of the stories in particular, that um, is not from this season of, of time, uh, but Anka's father uh, reminded me how the gospel came to uh, one of the northern areas of Romania at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, his uh, grandfather was uh, the first uh, believer in his village. And uh, the grandfather heard the gospel through a uh, prisoner of war, a Russian prisoner of war uh, that had a New Testament. And uh, while in that region of, of northern Romania, uh, he proclaimed the truth about God, about Jesus. And it just reminded me how God can use such difficult experiences such as the suffering of war, and yet through those experiences, the gospel is able to penetrate and be spread. And as I heard that story from the previous century, uh, it was an encouragement to my heart to pray and ask of the Lord that in times like this, when the Ukrainian people are being spread all over the world uh, in different nations, uh, that they are able to come in contact with the people of God and there have a display and an awareness of who God is. I was so encouraged that the first Sunday I was in Romania, the uh, One One Baptist Church asked me to preach, and uh, there in the service, there's 12 to 15 Ukrainian refugees listening. And the church had it arranged for a live uh, translation on the spot uh, a Romanian brother who speaks Russian to translate the whole service. And they got the technology to give him earphones and all that so that Ukrainian refugees who come to the services were able to hear about who God is, hear the gospel, see the gospel displayed through the life of the church. As they were invited uh, in people's homes for dinners and lunches and fellowship, uh, it just gave me encouragement that in the midst of the suffering that's going on in that part of the world, the Lord can and is using uh, this experience of, of dispersing people 
even through suffering, uh, to bring them to a knowledge of the Savior. So we need to pray. Uh, in the midst of suffering, we can be encouraged that God is still at work. Um, it's so good to be back with you and speak English. <laughs> and to be able to speak God's word in English. Have you ever considered how weighty the word but can be? In certain contexts, especially, students, imagine the professor saying after an exam, most of you have failed the exam, but I'm going to grade on a curve. Or imagine going to the doctor and hearing the following report, we found a tumor in your body. but it is not cancer. Or imagine getting a phone call from the police telling you that your son was involved in a terrible car accident, but he's fine. Do you have such significant but moments uh, over lunch? If you're having lunch with someone, think about some experiences when you had the significant but moments and share them with one another. There is a particular place in the book of Romans where we are coming upon a significantly big but moment. I invite you to open God's word to the book of Romans chapter 3. We'll start with verse 21 all the way to verse 31. And as you open God's word there, we are back in the book of Romans, uh, working through this amazing letter. Uh, as you turn to God's word there, let me just say I'm so grateful and thankful that the Lord has uh, provided preachers uh, to preach God's word here in this congregation the last few weeks. I've started listening to the messages and been so encouraged by them. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to our hearts this morning as we look to God's word. Romans chapter 3. And the passage we are about to read starts with what I consider the most important but word in the book of Romans and perhaps even in the whole Bible. This is God's word. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Amen. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to speak to our hearts? Let's pray. Gracious Father, what an honor for us to stand before your presence, before your word, before this particular word. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts, our eyes to understand it. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who still has not yet encountered the blessing of being justified in your sight, of experiencing and embracing your righteousness, oh, Father, we pray that today would be the day when you open their eyes to see their need of Jesus. We pray all this, Father, in the name of Christ, for his glory, for his honor, and through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. But now, up to this moment, up to this point in the book of Romans, Paul has been laying out a case of the universality of sin, that both Gentiles and Jews alike are guilty before God, are guilty before his judgment seat, because both have turned their backs on God And what's worse is that they cannot make themselves right in his sight, even if they have the law. The first major section of the book of Romans ends on these words in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the first three chapters of this book bring us to a place of terrible news, of helplessness, that our rebellious situation is universal. No one is outside of it. And then none of us can help ourselves out of it. Not even the law of God can help us in this predicament. Instead of being a means of escaping God's judgment, God's law will actually leave us speechless before God's throne of judgment. And the whole earth to be held fully accountable. So, Mr. Good Person, your goodness will not be good enough to make you right with God. Mrs. Religious Person, your religious pious acts 
are not going to be good enough to make you right with God. Mr. Sincere Person, your sincerity will not be sufficient, good enough to cover up your breaking of God's law. And Miss Authentic Person, your authenticity will also not be good enough to undo the breaking of God's law. So, is there any hope for a humanity that cannot justify itself before the Almighty God? It's exactly at this point that Paul introduces the word, but now. No one can be righteous enough on their own to escape God's judgment, but now. There is a different righteousness that has been revealed. And it's not man's righteousness, but the righteousness of God. And the amazing good news about this righteousness of God is that it can be credited on our account. Anyone can grab hold of it, and this text will show us how and what implications that has for us. So this morning, as we look at this amazing turn of events in the, in the flow of the argument of the book of Romans, we get to hear that the righteousness of God has been revealed and it can become ours. That's the message of this text. The righteousness of God has been revealed, and it can become ours. So as we look at this passage, three questions come up. What is the righteousness of God? How can we obtain it, and how does it affect us? What is it? How do we obtain it, and how does it affect us? What is this righteousness of God? In the book of Romans, the righteousness of God refers not to his character or nature, nor is it referring to his attribute of being righteous. We see those in other parts of the Bible. But here in the book of Romans, in particularly this passage, the righteousness of God that is being revealed is not referring to his character or attribute, but instead to his actions. To the actions that God did in order to put people in right relationship to himself. As one Bible teacher put it well, this is the righteousness of God God acting to put people in right relationship to himself. So it's not an attribute. It's not a characteristic of his nature. In this passage, the righteousness of God is the action of God to put people in right relationship to himself. And in order to put people in a right relationship to himself, God has to justify people. Because all humanity stands guilty before God, as we have been led to understand so far in the book of Romans, 
God has to justify us. The last sermon we had from this book, we saw two points. I'm a sinner. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the second point from the last sermon was, I am guilty. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. So if God is acting to put people in a right relationship with himself, he must deal with this blockage that we stand unrighteous. We stand condemned, guilty before him, and he must justify us. As a matter of fact, the word for righteousness and justification in the Greek language is the same word. The verb form of the noun righteousness is to justify. So when we see the righteousness of God has been revealed, what the author of, of, the, of this book, of the book of Romans, is intending to say is God is acting to justify us. And the question is, how? Because we're guilty. The guilt cannot be undone. The guilt cannot be just put under the rug, assuming it's not there. The guilt cannot be simply given a pass. Oh, it was a first fault. I'll let this one go. I'll just give a warrant or a warning. This is where we encounter the enormous truth about the righteousness of God. And verses 21 to 26 gives us or give us the grounds on which God acts to justify sinners. How does God act to justify condemned sinners like you and me? There's a few characteristics, a few important descriptions about how God acts in justifying us. And the first one is a, is a negative characteristic. He does it apart from the law. Look at verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, this is shocking news for the Jewish people to hear. God's righteousness to be manifested apart from the law? After all, the law was supposed to be one of the places where we see what is right in the sight of God. Uh, the, the, the law is the place where we see the character of God, the nature of God, what he considers right and wrong. So to hear that now God is making his righteousness manifested, his act of justifying is becoming manifested apart from the law is just mind-boggling for a Jewish person. Yet, Paul says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's not that they have nothing to do with it. They're pointing forward to it. But they're bearing witness to something in the future to come. So where is this righteousness of God manifested if the Old Testament law and the prophets were pointing forward to it? The answer is in Jesus Christ. The, this is the second characteristic of, of the righteousness of God, how it's manifested. 
to understand the righteousness of God that the law and the prophets pointed to, we must understand and look at Paul's logic in verses 23 to 25. In verse 23, Paul gives a summary of what he has been saying so far throughout the book of Romans. In, In one simple phrase, he summarizes chapters 1, 2, and 3. And the phrase in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the summary of chapters 1, 2, and the first half of chapter 3. This is the bad news that the gospel reveals about everyone, including about you and about me, that we all have sinned, that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet in verse 24, the news of the gospel moves on to the next phase of the, of the development of this news. The gospel tells us that we are declared innocent and right in the sight of a holy judge. We are justified, verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And let's look at at this verse, these parts in, in detail. God shows us his righteousness by justifying us. This is the act, God justifying us. How? By his grace, as a gift. This was not given by our performance of God's law. That is why when God acted to justify us, he acted not on the condition of the law, but on the condition of his grace. And he gives it to us as a gift. But just because it's coming from his grace, and just because it is given as a gift to us, it does not mean that it was free for God. As a matter of fact, the second part of verse 24 tells us what God had to do to extend this justification as a gift to us. God had to work an act of redemption through his son. Because our sin not only makes us guilty, it also enslaves us. Therefore, before God could declare us innocent, no longer guilty, something else had to take place as well. A redemption of an act of freeing, of liberating. It makes no sense to declare someone free if he's actually still in chains. Words alone will not do it. And in the case of God, in order for him to actually justify us, to declare us no longer guilty, he had to also redeem us because sin not only makes us guilty but brings us in bondage. So this redemption was accomplished by Jesus. And verse 25 tells us how God acted in Christ to redeem us through Christ. In verse 25, we get the details. We hear that in Jesus, or the redemption that comes through Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Can you tell me what the word propitiation means? 
Can you think of the last time you actually used the word propitiation in a sentence? We've rarely used this, this word. The word means to avert the wrath of God. It was used in the Old Testament, particularly for the mercy seat. Uh, it was the, the cover in the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant that was put in the Holy of Holies. It was the golden cover over the Ark of the Covenant. And on this golden cover, the high priest would come in once a year and only once a year on the Day of Atonement to bring with him the blood of an animal and would sprinkle, will take from that blood and will sprinkle it on this golden cover. Would sprinkle it. And if he came into the presence of the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God in that spot, without the blood to, to be sprinkled on the ark, on the cover of the ark, uh, God would kill the priest. Because it was needed... What was needed was the, the wrath of God against the sin of God's people had to be averted, had to be propitiated. So the Old Testament uh, artifact of the, of the mercy seat is described with this, with this word in the Hebrew that was translated in the Greek by the word propitiation. The mercy seat was the propitiation, the place of propitiation. The place where the priest would bring the blood to avert the wrath of God against the, the, the sin of the people. So the word propitiation means the place where God's wrath is averted because of the blood that has been shed as punishment for people's sin. And now in the book of Romans, we hear that when God redeemed us, the process of redemption involved God presenting Jesus as the place of propitiation, as the means of propitiation, so that through his blood that was shed, the wrath of God might be averted from his people who have broken God's law. And this God did in order to justify sinners in order to declare sinners no longer guilty and instead declare them righteous. And after describing how God acted to make Jesus be our propitiation, Paul says in verses 25 and 26 that God acted this way to show us his righteousness. Look at verse 25 and 26. Twice we see this language to show God's righteousness Paul says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see what God did to show us his righteousness? 
by delaying to execute the full punishment of humanity's sin before the cross, yes, there were moments in when God exerted divine judgment on people in the Old Testament, but it was never the full amount of his judgment. God delayed executing the full punishment of humanity's sin until Jesus came down from heaven so that Jesus would take upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God against our sin. Now, ancient pagans understood this concept very well. They were very familiar with the idea of needing to bring sacrifices to their gods in order to avert their wrath. But the news of the gospel is that actually the one who presented the sacrifice for the wrath to be averted was actually God himself putting forward his own son so that he might take the full execution of the wrath of God against the rebellion of humanity so that God's own wrath against a rebellious humanity might be averted. This is the amazing difference between ancient worship, pagan worship, and the way God described himself and, and the gospel, that he would provide the means, the sacrifice, that he would be the source because humanity could never present enough sacrifices. Humanity could never bring up enough acts of obedience to act so well and so much to avert the wrath of God against our sin. But God presented his own son Oh, my dear friends, this was to show God's righteousness. This is how God acted in order to justify sinners like you and me. Friends, that's why God justifies us freely as a gift. It's free to us, but it costs God the life of his own son. It's by grace to us but it costs God everything. Oh, friends, consider that in order for God to declare us righteous, he had to act in Jesus first and foremost. To bring about redemption by making Jesus a propitiation. And once he has redeemed us, God is now able and ready to justify us, to declare us righteous. How do we obtain this righteousness? We saw what this righteousness is. This righteousness is not referring to his character or his attribute. It refers to his action to justify sinners through the redemption that is in Jesus, whom God made as a propitiation for our sins. If this is what the righteousness is, then how do we obtain it? Several times in this passage, Paul makes clear that we obtain God's righteousness by faith. By faith. Look back to verse 22, where Paul says, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness of God is not given through the law. If it was given through the law, then it would be given only to those who obey the law. 
Only those who practice the law. Only those who have the law and actually do it. But it is through faith, and therefore it is given to all who believe. That's why Christians make a big deal about Jesus and about placing our faith in Jesus. Without this personal act of, of faith, of, of reliance on what Jesus did and accomplished for us, none of us would be ready to stand before God's throne of judgment. Look also in verse 25. Paul says again, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We receive Jesus as our propitiation when we receive him by faith. Friends, this is why believing in Jesus is not merely an act of faith that he existed, that he did great things on earth, that he, ta- that he taught wonderful uh, things that we can learn from. Faith in Jesus, in a Christian sense, the Christian faith in Jesus, is the act of trusting on his death as a propitiation for our sins. Relying on his death, that his death averts God's wrath against us. His blood was the punishment. Oh, friends, this is a good news that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we receive the benefit of justification, of the righteousness of God. It can be credited on our account at the moment when we rely on what Jesus has done in our place. Look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier for whom? Of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, friends, have you placed your faith in Jesus in this way? as an act of receiving the righteousness of God by faith in Christ? Friends, have you responded by faith to place your reliance on Jesus to be the one who averts God's wrath away from you, from your sins, and on whose merit you can be declared righteous in the sight of God? This is why Christians are willing to give their lives for the sake of Christ because we realize that our lives before God's throne of judgment is no longer based on what we have done, but what Christ has done for us. Because Christ gave his life for us to avert a divine wrath that none of us could face on our own, our lives now are fully, fully his because he has given his life fully for us. This is why Christians are willing to let go of the comforts of American life and go and be missionaries in other parts of the world, like Ruth did. Because we want the nations of the world to know that even today, God continues to justify sinners who place their trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Friends, this is why those of us who are Christians want to make sure that we are clear what faith in Jesus means when we evangelize and share the gospel. That we don't just give a cheap gospel, a cheap faith, an easy believism 
of just believing that Jesus is good. That we want to make sure people understand what Jesus did to make us right with God. Faith in Jesus means reliance on his sacrifice in our place to avert the wrath of God that we deserved, that the book of Romans chapter 1 has warned us about. Friends, I wonder if you have trusted in Jesus by faith. If you have not, I want to encourage you today to do it. Look to Jesus as the one who averts the wrath of God against your sin. Hold on to him as your propitiation. That is the only chance you have. And if you look to him by faith, would you talk to someone in this room after the service? And if you have questions about what that means, we would love to talk to you about it. But don't leave from this place without embracing Jesus as your propitiation. Well, friends, I pray that that would be you today. And for those of us who have embraced Jesus as our propitiation, can you look to him with hearts full of gratitude, with hearts that are willing to serve him fully because there's, there's nothing we can hold back when he has held nothing back from saving us. The righteousness of God affects our life. This is the third point we see in our passage this morning. The righteousness of God affects our life. How? I want to make sure we understand first and foremost that whatever we will say from this moment forward, it is not that God's righteousness makes us become righteous. It's rather that God's righteousness declares us to be righteous even though we are not. It's very important for us to understand this is one of the differences between Protestant theology and Roman Catholic theology. In Roman Catholic understanding of the righteousness of God, uh, the understanding is that God doesn't just declare us righteous, but he actually makes us righteous and therefore he sees us righteous because he makes us righteous. In this passage, Paul is incredibly clear that the righteousness of God is the act of justifying us, of declaring us righteous, period. That's a big difference between Roman Catholic theology and Protestant, the Protestant understanding of the righteousness of God that the righteousness of God becomes ours by an act of justification, that we are declared a declaration from God. And all the effects that come out of that declaration are more like the fruit. There are implications. God does not look at us and sees us righteous because he makes us righteous. God sees us righteous because he declares us righteous, because he imputes, credits the righteousness of Jesus on our account. Nevertheless, there are implications for us. When we understand that we are declared righteous in the sight of God, that the righteousness of God can become ours by faith alone, in Christ alone, it has some implications, and these are 
fruits of understanding the righteousness of God by faith. And we see three in particular brought out in this passage. There's more that we could look at if we looked at other passages of the Bible, but there's three in this passage in verses 27 through 31. The first one is humility. When we understand the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ, it leads us to humility. Look at verses 27 and 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The Old Testament law became a reason for the pride and the boasting of the Jewish people when they compared themselves with the rest of the world. When they heard about the righteousness that is given to us in Jesus, a Jewish person might say, I understand the Gentiles need it, but I don't. I got the law of God. I'm good. Look at, look at, all, my, look at all my righteous deeds. Look at all the things I am doing. Yes, sinners like tax collectors. Sinners like those who, who cheat and are corrupt. Yes, but I am good. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Both at the temple praying. The Pharisee began praying and his praying was filled with bullet points of what he has done. And how well he was living out his religious life. How well he was obeying God. And how he despised the tax collector who was resting not on his good behavior because the tax collector realized he had none. But the tax collector, when he prayed, he had only one thing to rest on not his performance, but the mercy of God. And Jesus, when he presented those two people in the temple, in the story, Jesus drew a lesson from that story, from that parable. And Jesus said in Luke 18, 14, I tell you, this man, speaking about the tax collector, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Because when we understand that we are justified in the sight of God, not based on the law, not based on our performance of our good deeds before God, but solely on the mercy of God, it is in that moment that we go home justified in the sight of God. Friends, the doctrine of the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ is not merely for our minds to be big with theological terms. It is for our hearts to be humbled, for our minds to be thinking less of ourselves, less of the goodness of how well we're living our lives, of how well God should think of us a heart gripped by the righteousness of God will have less and less room to be gripped by self-accomplishment. That's why even churches should be very cautious 
of looking to their own actions and programs and what they do for the Lord. A heart gripped by the righteousness of God by faith will have less room to hold on to our accomplishments. But you know what else we'll have less room to hold on to? To our failures and shortcomings. Sometimes one of the reasons why we struggle with and are overcome by our shortcomings and, and failures is that we actually make too much of our accomplishment. And when we fail, we are hurt. Our ego is hurt too much by those shortcomings. And we can't let go of that. And we cannot actually embrace the mercy of God. We're too stuck on our shortcomings. That too is an act of pride. Because our ego is hurt that we can't actually perform the way we actually want to. And what we must come to grip with is we must actually let our ego go completely. When we come to be gripped by the fact that God justifies us, not based on what we do or can do or ought to do, but he justifies us based on what Jesus has done on our behalf. Oh, friends, it leads us to put aside our own cravings for personal boasting, for self-exaltation, our cravings to compare ourselves with others who are better or worse than us. You can fall in the trap of comparing yourself with others on both sides. To compare yourself with those who are better than you or to compare yourself with those who are worse than you. Both have the same problem. Because the righteousness of God reveals that actually all of us are unrighteous on our own. So, let me ask you, has meditating on the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ led you to grow in more humility? Be honest. The right meditation on the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus should lead us to less boasting, less comparison, less self-exaltation, and to more humility. So ask God to help you mortify your own self-boasting by meditating on the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. Students, you may have high hopes this semester as you're starting the year and starting a new, uh, new track. Don't Set your high hopes on what you will accomplish. Put your hope on what God has accomplished for you in Jesus and let that accomplishment guide your life. Second, it promotes not only humility, when we understand that righteousness of God by faith, it promotes unity among God's people. We see that in verses 29 and 30. Understanding the righteousness of God leads us to see how God, who is one, saves all people in the same way. Not just Jews, but Gentiles alike. Look at verse 29 and 30. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Oh, friends, Yes, we have some wonderful truths here in these verses. Since God is one, 
And since his way of salvation is the same for Jews as for Gentiles, it should lead us to see Jews and Gentiles together as the one people of God. This entire letter to the Romans is dealing with the difficult relationships that Jews and Gentiles had in the church. In the church, these differences should no longer be held as reasons for separation, as reasons for, for holding on to grudges, as reasons for holding on some in higher esteem than others. It should not be reasons for breaking fellowship or breaking respect. If God saved Jews and Gentiles the same way, then we better not put stumbling blocks between Jews and Gentiles in the church. This is why Paul had to explain earlier in verse 22 that when we understand the righteousness of God being by faith through Jesus, it now opens up the door for anyone, anyone who believes to be received. And Paul goes on to say, there's now no more distinction. It's amazing that in this text, the truth about the righteousness of God by faith was not presented so much to deal with the works-based righteousness as much as to deal with the, tr the challenge of the fellowship between Jews and Gentiles in the church. Do you want to repair the, the, fr the, the fellowship or the broken relationships that happen between Jews and Gentiles in the church of Rome? Paul says, let's go to the doctrine of the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And he has to say, after he presents it, he has to say, and there's no distinction. That means, my friends, that actually getting back to doctrines can be a means of unifying the people of God. The doctrine of justification by faith alone was meant to repair the broken relationships, the broken fellowship between Jewish and Gentile Christians in the Church of Rome. This means that the righteousness of God by faith levels all of us who believe in Jesus, levels all of us to be on the same plane. No more distinctions between worshipers so that we would be united as the one people of God. But friends, I need also to say and, and point out this an, an important assumption. The important assumption of this text is that there's only one way Jesus, I mean God saves. God does not save Jews and Gentiles in separate ways. There's only one way that God saves sinners. And this assumption that is so clear in this text is so debated today. Friends, it is not true that all roads lead to God. It is not true that all faiths end up in the same place. Since there's one God, only one God, and he saves both Jews and Gentiles in only one way, through faith in Jesus Christ, we better know that one way. Outside of that one way, we will be far from God and facing his wrath. But when we understand the one way, of being saved by Jesus through faith in him. It brings us to union with God and to union with one another. So have you considered that God's way of salvation is not different for different people? God saves in the same way 
by faith in Jesus. And because he saves in the same way, by faith in Jesus, the people he saves ought to be one. They should make no more distinctions among one another. And then there is a third and final implication. When we understand the righteousness of God by faith, the implication is that actually it accomplishes what the law pointed to. The last objection that Paul brings up is that somehow if we are saved by the righteousness of God by faith, does this faith overthrow the law and the prophets and the Old Testament? Now, one can understand the force of this objection, especially since the very first verse, verse 21, Paul said that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So if that's the case, do we just discard the law? If the law is not needed to obtain the righteousness of God, should we become minimalists and just throw it out? Paul says, no, not at all. Look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Far from overthrowing the law, the righteousness of God that comes apart from the law actually upholds the law. How does that work? Is there a contradiction here? The law of God is upheld by the righteousness of God by faith. How? Well, because the law of God is actually validated, established, if you will, when we embrace the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. You say, how and why? We don't uphold the law of God by obeying the law of God. We actually uphold the law of God by trusting in Jesus so that we could have the righteousness of God. That's how we uphold the law of God. Because we have lost our righteousness. We have lost it. And the law makes it very clear. Once you've broken it, it's gone. And the only way for us to obtain the righteousness of God ever again is if we obtain it through the provision that the law anticipated, pointed forward to, and that is in Jesus. God's law pointed forward to the time when God would justify sinners by faith. Paul wanted to make sure that people understand the righteousness of God, which is to be received by faith, is not a brand new teaching. It has been pointed to, presented, anticipated, even in the Old Testament. So now that Jesus has come, now that God justifies sinners by faith in Jesus, Paul says the law is not thrown out the window. The law is established. It is validated. What it pointed to has now proven to be the case in Jesus. That's why Jesus said that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Oh, friends, how do we uphold and establish the law of God today? It's not by obeying it. It's by trusting in Jesus to be our righteousness. And out of that, 
out of that comes everything that the law pointed to and demanded. Friends, what God said in the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the law is in the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we as Christians, we don't treat the Old Testament as if it's a lesser book than the New Testament. We don't look at the Old Testament as archives that are supposed to just collect dust. No, we, we get into the Old Testament just as we get into the New Testament because we realize to appreciate the new, we must understand how God anticipated it and promised it in the Old. That the same God who wanted to save by faith in the New Testament wrote in the Old Testament how he would justify people. And the great example we will see is Abraham, and we'll look at him next week. That's why we study the Old Testament, and we find it important because it's the Word of God that prepares our hearts to understand our need for the righteousness of God. The history of the Old Testament, the history of the people of God in the Old Testament is such a powerful reminder that no matter how much God gave His Word to His people, no matter how much God told them what He requires of them, and no matter how often they tried to do it on their own, the consistent echo of the Old Testament story of the people of God is they could not do it on their own. So we appreciate the Old Testament because it points us to our need to, to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and ask of God, oh God, do it in my heart through what you have done in Jesus Christ. Do in me what you have done in Jesus. Justify me through the propitiation that you have done in Jesus because my righteousness is not in me. I wonder if you have come to embrace the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way you have acted to justify us sinners. And thank you that you have revealed in your word for us today that your righteousness is your act of justifying us based on what Jesus has done on our behalf. Oh, great God, we pray that you would open our hearts to embrace the righteousness that you have given to us in Jesus and to do so by faith. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.